And we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're dipping back in. And if you remember the Gospel of Mark, it's a, it's a gospel where God invades the cosmos in the person of Jesus Christ, and he invades the cosmos and finds that the world that he made is a world that has been taken over by hostile forces. And, uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's an exciting book. It's a book uh, where Jesus is at war. And he goes around and he casts out demons and, um, and he fights for his people. And, and the demons are never too far away, not even in, in the passage which we have just heard read, this famous passage where the disciples are at the sea. The sea, which in the Jewish mindset is the abode of the demons, the place of chaos and confusion, of darkness. And so as we... There I go my notes. As we, um, as we look at this, this passage, let me, let me pray for us. Lord, it's a familiar passage to many, but let not its familiarity dull us from seeing its power, which resides in seeing you. So show us yourself, unveil to us who you are, Jesus, in all your glory, that we might be changed as the disciples were that day. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, Isaiah 8.13 says, Do not fear anything except the Lord Almighty. He alone is the Holy One. Do not fear anything except the Lord Almighty. And that's a, that's a hard command to follow, isn't it? Because there are a lot of things out there to be afraid of. Some of us have ablutophobia, fear of bathing or washing. My genes have that. They get washed about once every six months. Others of us perhaps have, uh, others of you have omphalophobia, the fear of belly buttons, and let's be honest, that's a pretty sensible fear, considering that most of us have ablutophobia as it concerns our belly buttons. If, you, uh, if you're a reasonable person, then you have uh, calorophobia, fear of clowns, which is totally sensible. So those things are really scary. If you're a parent in here, I'm sure at some time or another, you suspected that your kids have agoraphobia, that is the fear of work or the workplace environment. If they're in their 20s or 30s, you may wonder if they have decidophobia, which is very closely related to FOMO, fear of missing out. There are lots of things to be afraid of. There are new fears that are coming up all the time. Uh, a study in the UK said a whopping 50% of people have nomophobia. Fear of not having your mobile device. A serious first world problem. And then there's omniphobia. Fear of everything. And that pretty much covers it. There's a lot to be afraid of in this world. From natural disasters to nuclear war with North Korea. And let's be honest, most of it we can't control. That's what I'm afraid of. 
being out of control. I had a dream about, I don't know, a couple months ago. And uh, in the dream, I was in Boston. I was in Boston to interview at a conference to interview candidates for the assistant associate pastor job. Uh, And I'm trying to meet with the candidates, and I have a designated meeting place, and yet I cannot find it. It's not that I don't know where it is. I know exactly where it is. It's just that I can't get there. Like, the elevator won't stop at the floor. It keeps passing it up. And then I try to take the stairs, and the stairs don't stop at that place. And then I try to go in another direction, and the doors are shut and locked. And then I walk another way, and there aren't any doors there. And then I end up outside, and it's like going through the night. And eventually, I'm so frustrated, and I realize I'm not going to be able to meet these candidates. That's not going to happen. Why am I in Boston? But the good thing is I had some other things scheduled there that weekend, and so that next morning I was slated to preach at a worship service uh, that was held in the basement of the hotel room. So I'm down there, fluorescent uh, lights in this tiny little room. Uh, They're miking me up, and I don't know why, because there are only about 20 people there. And all the men have on those like short sleeve dress shirts, you know the ones I'm talking about, with they all have ties on and polyester pants. There's a lot to be afraid of in this world. So I'm there... And then I realized that I cannot find my notes. I don't have my notes, but that's okay because, you know, there's some sermons that, uh, you know, they're back pocket sermons. You've always got to have one of those, and I had one of those, so I know I can preach without notes. Um, The only problem is, is I look at my Bible, and the text that I want to preach out of is in the Old Testament, and for whatever reason, I just brought my Greek New Testament. It's a dream. And... Then I'm like, okay, I need, I need an Old Testament, and I ask, and someone uh, provides me one, and as I'm looking up the passage, I look, and, and this Bible was so well-worn by this uh, godly person that the, these pages had fallen out. And, and, and then I'm like, well, I think I can get through it anyway. I know the passage well enough, uh, but they're miking me, and the mic's not working. And then in the middle of that, like, people start going, well, I guess we're not going to have a sermon today. And they're like, we'll just sing. And someone gets up, and they start singing these hymns. And like, it's kind of back and forth, and they're speaking over me. And as we're doing these hymns, and then people are like, well, I mean, I don't know why I came. So people just start leaving. Uh, and in the middle of that, it gets worse. They're testing my mic. I'm looking for the passage. And then all of a sudden, I realize it is November 18th. It's November 18th. 2017. And I'm supposed to be performing John Dietrich and Katie Regan's wedding in Santa Barbara. (laughs) Like, in five hours. And I'm in Boston. And I'm going, why am I in Boston? I shouldn't be in Boston. Why am I even here? So then, I'm looking up flights to get back. I'm calling Jordan. Jordan, you look with me. We got to find a flight. I've got to get back. There are no flights. I can't get back. You know, sometimes you go to sleep and you think you're going to get a rest, and it would have been better to stay awake. And it's one of those situations where I was just completely out of control. And it was scary. The disciples find themselves in a situation where they are completely out of control. Look, verse 37. 
They're out on the Sea of Galilee, and a great windstorm arises. It says, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was filling. And they're afraid. They are afraid. And that must have been some kind of storm, because remember, these are professional fishermen, so they know the sea, they know boats. So what kind of storm must it have been for these fishermen to be so scared? See, you start to realize why ancient Israelites didn't see the sea as a place to go on vacation, but as the place of chaos and confusion. You know, have you ever, do you ever feel, or I know you feel, I mean, sometimes it just feels like life is one big chaotic storm, doesn't it? With... The troubled kid, the unruly house, the task at work, the doctor's appointments, the endless pile of bills and correspondence, the emails that you can't like get down, just over and over and over, and it just feels like it's spinning out of control. I got back um, from vacation a couple weeks ago, and uh, Pam and I decided to do something um, really kind to ourselves. We decided, you know, when we're settling back in and paying vacation tax, because you, know, you have to pay tax after every vacation, right? Pay tax before vacation, pay tax after, because you've got all the emails and all the stuff. And you come back, and we decide during that time, that would be a perfect time to have our floors redone in our house. Uh, and we live in an upstairs condo, and there isn't a lot of place for the furniture to go, so things are like piled everywhere. And then it was, we needed to have the carpets redone because, you know, the nails were poking through, and our daughter's like, ow, you know, it hurts. So we're like, okay, we should probably get the floors redone. So we got the floors redone, and our house was just one big chaotic mess. I mean, you never imagine the things that you can't find or that you look for, you know, like a checkbook. I didn't even think I used that anymore, and like twice I had to find the checkbook. But where is it? We couldn't find anything. And that would have been okay if it was just my house, but the problem was is that my house that week just reminded me of life. What it's like when I step out the door. And what most of you experience when you step out the door. Do you ever feel like life is just one big chaotic storm? And it can be scary. And what fears do the storms of life conjure up in you? Exposure? Failure? Addiction? Failing others, abandonment. The disciples find themselves in the midst of a chaotic storm. But how did they get in this place? Look, verse 37, or verse 35. When evening had come, he, that is Jesus, said to them, let us go across to the other side. How did they get into the storm? They got into the storm by obeying Jesus. You know, some storms in our lives, they come into our lives because of bad decisions we make. Sin. 
sometimes we're in, get ourselves into relationships with people that we shouldn't be in relationships with. Sometimes we put things in our body that we shouldn't put into our body. Uh, sometimes we make decisions to spend money on things that we have no business spending money on. Or money we don't have on things that we have no business spending money on. Some storms that come into our life come because of bad decisions that we make. And some storms that come into our life come into our life simply because we are following Jesus. And that's what happens here. And that is terribly hard for us to understand. Because for most of us, somewhere along the way, if we were told explicitly or we picked up implicitly that if we follow Jesus, then the wind will always be on our back and the sun will always be at our face. If we follow Jesus, then life will not be chaotic. It will not be confusing. It will be peaceful and harmonious. And that's the way it's going to go. And then here's what happens. We think we're following Jesus, and then the storms arise into our lives, and then we sit there and we say, what's going on, Lord? We got shortchanged. Why are you doing this to me? This is not fair. Or we realize we haven't been following Jesus, and we feel really guilty, and we say, this is the reason this is happening, and so I just got to buck up and figure it out. I got to get my act together. Or we look at other people and we see things that happen in their lives. You know what I'm talking about. And they're in the midst of storms and we think, and what must they have done? If they would only have been more spiritual. If they would only have been more responsible. If they would only have prayed harder. If they would only be a better husband or a better wife. Then they wouldn't be in the midst of this storm. I think that. Do you not think that? And isn't it because we have bought this lie that somehow if we follow Jesus and we follow Jesus well, there will be no storms. But this narrative gives the lie to that story that we tell ourselves so often. Following Jesus does not prevent chaos and confusion and sorrows and the storms of life. In fact, sometimes following Jesus leads us right into the middle of them like it did here for the disciples. Rosaria Butterfield talks about the confusion and chaos that arose when she became a follower of Jesus. She writes, Although grateful, I did not consider conversion to be a quote-unquote blessing. When I became a Christian, I had to change everything. My life, my friends, my writing, my teaching, my advising, my clothes, my speech, my thoughts. I was tenured to a field that I could no longer work in, and I was writing a book that I no longer believed in. And then she says, conversion put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. You know, sometimes following Jesus puts us into a complicated and comprehensive chaos. Do you know... Do you know what the second most dangerous place in the world is? It's to be right in the center of God's will. Of course, the most dangerous place is to be outside of God's prescriptive will. But the second most dangerous place in the world is to be right in the center of God's prescriptive will. Because it was Jesus who said, his fundamental command, 
take up your cross and follow me. See, Jesus did not promise a life of peace and prosperity in this age. He promised tribulation and persecution and a cross. You say, whoa, 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 Kyle. Wait a second. I was here last week, and I heard Jonathan preach, and I heard him preach about Jesus providing the wine, and I heard him say that Jesus came to bring our enjoyment, that he wants us to enjoy things. So what are you talking about? I mean, didn't he say that the chief purpose, that the, the ultimate goal of humanity was to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Isn't that humanity's goal? Isn't that what God created us for? To enjoy him. Yes. Yes, he did. God created us to enjoy him. And oftentimes he will take away what is second best so that we will appreciate and enjoy what is best of all. Oftentimes in this world, God will not give us or allow us to have what is second best so that we can have what is best of all, and that is Him. I had some friends, they went out to a sushi restaurant that was really, really nice. And it happened that on this night, which they hardly ever run these kind of, um, these kind of menus, but on this night, it is all-you-can-eat sushi. There's only one kind of caveat. If you leave any on the plate, you have to pay extra for it, okay? So you got to, you know, you got to be very, and it's a very expensive restaurant. So you've got to be very calculating about what you order and how and why. And my friends, they were, they were there, and they were there with someone who, who was in the know. He had been there before. He knew what to do, and so they were like, we're going to trust him. And uh, it's one of those places where when you order things, they don't say, like, the normal description of it. And so it's like some, you know, uh, Japanese name for the roll. And so their friend's ordering these rolls, and he orders these rolls, and then all of a sudden the first course comes out, and they get six cucumber rolls. So there they are with six cucumber rolls that are probably like $20 a roll, right? Uh, because it's a nice place. And they're thinking, we have misordered, and now we have to eat all those cucumber rolls before we can eat anything else. And by the time they ate all the cucumber rolls, guess what? They didn't want anything else. They were stuffed. They were so stuffed on the cucumber rolls, which they weren't bad, but they weren't awesome. They weren't amazing. They weren't the thing that you were there for. That isn't what set this restaurant apart. It's not what got the reviews on it. But they were so full of the cucumber rolls that they couldn't actually experience and enjoy other things, the main dish, the main event. And I think that life is often like that. We are so full up on pleasures that are second best. That we don't know how much we're missing when we don't enjoy God. We enjoy the things God gives us. We enjoy his gifts. We enjoy his creation. And sometimes we enjoy them so much that we stop there. And we're full up on that 
And we don't enjoy the thing that our hearts were made for, to be satiated with him. See, sometimes God takes away all that we have so that we can realize that he is all that we need. And sometimes Jesus takes us into a place where he strips us of everything so that we can know that he is enough and he is better. But where's Jesus now? I mean, if that's the case, if that's why Jesus commands them to go over there, where is he now? Look verse 38. But he, that is Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. Uh, they're in the middle of a storm, and Jesus is there asleep on a cushion. Uh, what would you be thinking? Uh, what the disciples were thinking was, does he not care? I mean, does he not care that they're in the middle of this windstorm? Look, verse 38. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care, Jesus? It's the same thing the Israelites said when they were rescued out of Egypt and brought through the Red Sea and they were in the wilderness. God, do you not care that we are perishing? Did you bring us out into the desert to die? And it's the same thing that we often say to God when we are in the midst of the storms. Jesus, do you not care? Jesus, do you not care that I am lonely and single? Jesus, do you not care that I am unemployed? Jesus, do you not care that my body is failing? Jesus, do you not care? I mean, do you ever feel like in life, like Jesus is just asleep? I know that we're not supposed to say yes. But Jesus was asleep. And sometimes it feels like Jesus is asleep. Why is Jesus asleep? Why is Jesus asleep? Well, he's asleep because he's tired. And he must have been really tired to sleep through that storm. Why is Jesus tired? Why is he utterly exhausted? Why is the one who made all things who is without beginning and without end. Why is the one who neither slumbers nor sleeps, who needs not slumber or sleep, who does not grow tired or weary, why is he asleep on the bottom of a boat, utterly exhausted? Precisely because he cares. Precisely because he cares. The infinite God became finite. He entered into our fallen world world, our fallen, fragile world with all its sufferings and all its vicissitudes, and he became tired and he became exhausted. Why? Because he wants to be with us. Because he came to save us. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, the creed says. So yes, Jesus is asleep. He is asleep precisely because he cares. Dorothy Sayers put it like this once. For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited in suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. 
He has himself gone through the whole of the human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. And when he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace. And he thought it well worthwhile. Or as... Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 53, 11. He shall see the results of his anguish and be satisfied. Why was the infinite God contracted to a span? Why did the one who need not slumber nor sleep need to rest the bottom of a boat? For us and for our salvation, because he does care. And if you want proof of how much he cares, just consider how he responds to the disciples and to us when we accuse him of not caring. Do you know what he does? What does Jesus do when we accuse him of not caring? What do the disciples, what, is, uh, what does Jesus do for, when the disciples? Accuse him of not caring. He cares for them. He calms the storm. Look verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. What does Jesus do when we accuse him of not caring? He cares for us. That's the gospel. That's grace. It's the good news that God gives gifts of love and grace and salvation to those who are unworthy, who do not deserve it, who are not grateful. And he continues to give it anyway. Because he cares. Because he loves. So listen. Listen. When you are caught in the storms of life, and it appears that Jesus is asleep. Know this, that if he is asleep, it is because he cares. It is for us and for our salvation. That he did not lead us out of Egypt to lead us astray so that we might die in the wilderness. And he did not take on flesh and bleed and die and rise again because he's apathetic about you. Nothing could be further from the truth. He cares. He loves you. And it's precisely because he cares for the disciples that he does not coddle them. Look at verse 40. He turns and he asks them, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? Now that's hard. That's penetrating. Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? I mean, why does Jesus ask that question? It's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? Jesus asked the question because more than calming the storm in the world, he cares about calming the storm in our hearts. And Jesus asked the question because more than wanting us to feel better, Jesus actually wants us to get better. See, we often just want to feel better. We want our circumstances to change. 
But Jesus, he loves us too much to let to stop there. He wants us to be better, and he realizes that the biggest storm raging that day is not the storm outside the boat on the sea. The biggest storm that's raging that day is the storm in the disciples' hearts. And so he asked them, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? That's a good question. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid of losing your job? Why are you so afraid of not getting into that school? Why are you so afraid that the next date is not going to work out, or the one after that, or forever? Why are you so afraid of the wandering child? Why are you so afraid? He presses to the root of all our fear. Which is a failure to believe that God is bigger and God is better. That his steadfast love is better than life. That his praise is better than human applause. That his approval is greater than human disapproval. And that his power is stronger than death. And that his grace is greater than all our sin. Do you believe it? Verse 41 concludes by telling us that the disciples are filled with great fear. But this is a different kind of fear. Because they're filled with it and they were already afraid. So this must be a new fear. Something different. See, no longer are they afraid of the storm that was outside or the elements of the world. No longer are they afraid of their circumstances. Now they fear the one who is able to transform a furious squall into complete calm with just a word. And they say, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? You know, songs are very helpful they can often lead us places to our unconscious memory that our consciousness won't go. Oftentimes when I'm looking for an illustration or where the sermon should go next, I often think of a song. I wonder if the disciples recalled their songs that day. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? I wonder if they recalled the ancient songs, the ancient authoritative scriptural songs that they had sung since little boys in the synagogue. I wonder if they recalled Psalm 89. Who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You, God, rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Psalm 93. For mightier than thunders of mighty waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord is high and mighty. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Psalm 107, 28. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, as Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in the Jesus Storybook Bible, 
The wind and the waves recognized Jesus' voice. They had heard it before, of course, when he spoke them into being. Who is this? It is the man God became when God decided to become a man. That's who Jesus is. And now they are afraid. But that's the best kind of fear. Because they have reverence and awe for the one that they know that they cannot control. And who is bigger than everything else in this world. Isaiah 8.13 says, Do not fear anything except the Lord Almighty. He alone is holy. And if you fear him, you need fear nothing else. He will keep you safe. You see, in order for Jesus' words, peace be still, to calm the storm that rages inside your heart, you actually have to believe that he is powerful enough to calm the storms outside of your heart. In other words, in order to hear those words, you actually have to, in order to hear him, you have to fear him. You have to realize that he is bigger than all the other things that threaten to undo you. And only then, only when you fear him, can you hear him. Only then will his words, peace be still, be able to calm whatever storm is in your life. Only then will you be able to hear Jesus in the midst of the hospital room say, peace, be still. My steadfast love is better than life. Only then will you be able to hear him in the midst of the office say, peace, be still. Your reward and your praise are from God. Only then will you be able to walk into the front door of your house and hear him say, peace be still. I have come that you might have joy and that you might have it to the full. See, when you fear him, when you realize that he is bigger and he is better than everything else in this world, then, then Jesus' words to his storm-tossed church will still you in the midst of whatever storm you face. Do you believe it? Believe it. Peace be still. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.